You're listening to the DMZ Movers and Shakers podcast, the podcast for entrepreneurs by the world-leading tech incubator, the DMZ. In this podcast, each episode brings in the movers and shakers of the world to cover leadership mentality, tips for business owners, and much, much more. So without further ado, let's get into it. Here's your host, Canada's leading podcaster, CPA and business strategist, Robert Gold, managing partner at Bennett Gold LLP. Once again, from high atop the Movers and Shakers Podcast Center in Toronto, live and in the morning, we're way off to the east. I can see Redhead Cove, Newfoundland. I'm Robert Gold, Managing Partner of Bennett Gold LLP, Chartered Accounts and CPAs in Toronto. Today, I am more excited than usual. Today, Brian Gold is with us. And yes, there is a relationship. Brian is my nephew. Brian is the co-founder and the CEO of Hashtag Paid. Hashtag Paid. Brian, welcome to the Movers and Shakers Podcast. Thanks for having me. So, yes, you're my nephew, and that's not why you're on the show. You're on the show because you've done some incredible things. You've accomplished a lot just since 2014. So that's what we're going to get into. You launched a thing called Hashtag Paid in 2014. You went on a mission to connect marketers and influencers for campaigns and content creation. Today, Hashtag Paid is known as one of the world's first creator marketing platforms. You have 25,000 vetted, authentic social creators. And Hashtag Paid enables world-renowned brands to work with creators rather than needing to stick traditional marketing and advertising. It's a mouthful, but it's exciting. I have three questions. Can you explain how hashtag paid works from the perspective of the creator and the brands on the platform? But first, what is a creator marketer? Okay. So creator marketer or creator marketing would be the practice of working with creators in order to market your product. Creators can be people who have anywhere from a couple thousand followers online to 50, 100,000 followers, or even a few million followers on social media platforms who create content for an audience that is engaged and, and following along. Happy to explain how it works from the creator and brand's perspective. Essentially, if you take a look at this space, creators and brands are collaborating today. Just it's super messy and broken. So for a creator, if you hit 50,000 followers on Instagram, for example, and you want to work with Sephora, General Mills, where do you go? There isn't really a place that you can just go to get access to high quality brands. And so you'll probably get a few brands coming to you. They're likely going to try to rip you off or get you to post for free. Even if you do work with them, you might have to chase payments from them for 180 days or Maybe it'll make you reshoot and do more than you agreed to, but you didn't get the legal paperwork involved. And oftentimes as a creator, you don't even know how much to charge. And so we're really this messy space for, for creators. And then for brands, brands don't know where to go to find the right creators. If you're looking to launch in a new market and promote your product, who are the best people for you? It's not necessarily obvious who the right people are. And then once you do find them, working with them, can be time-consuming and tedious, especially if you're working with 10, 20, 30 creators. That's a lot of work to scale, and you're dealing with spreadsheets and email threads and text messages and WhatsApp, and creators are posting without you approving it, and maybe it's the wrong link, and there goes however much money you spent on that creator. Good luck trying to get them to repost. Or even once they do post and it's the right link, uh, maybe they're just posting organically, how do I track results? How do I measure my return on investment from working with this creator? And then how much should I even pay them? There's a lot of questions that, that brands have. And so at Hashtag Paid, we make it simple. We put a workflow tool in the hands of brands 
that matches them with the right creators, allows them to track results and success from their programs, allows them to scale with ease. We put our workflow tool in the hands of our creators who get access to high quality brands. We pay creators directly to their bank account on time, earlier often than if they were to just work with a brand directly. And they don't need to do any reshoots because we've got brief all taken care of. And we help creators figure out how much to charge if they don't even know what price to set. And so we built a software tool that acts as a SaaS platform as well as a marketplace for brands and creators to connect and collaborate so that creators can make money doing what they love and brands can grow their brands using creators. What's really interesting to me is you've thrown away you stomped on the term influencers. Everybody talks about influencers, but not hashtag paid. You guys talk about creators. And the website at hashtagpaid.com says, goodbye influencers, hello creators. I think it's a brilliant differentiation. Let's back up a bit. Where did the whole idea come from for hashtag paid? And I want to know what was your experience like building this thing from the ground up? And how many employees do you have now that we're addressing? So we have about 57 employees now, and the whole thing started off as an idea because me and my co-founder, Adam, had a good friend named Ronnie who accidentally blew up on social media and gained 100,000 followers within six to 12 months. Doing what? Ronnie, Ronnie was going through a transformational fitness journey where she started exercising more than she ever did, and she was eating healthy taking pictures of her meals and sharing the recipes with her followers. She essentially created an online account set out to keep herself accountable to the public and inspire anyone who wanted to follow her journey along the way. And she completely transformed her body and inspired hundreds of thousands of people. Adam and I were looking through Ronnie's account. This was maybe 2013, 2014. Ronnie um, was posting about brands that she said she used in order to get fit. She would tag her protein company. She would tag certain clothes that she wore. And then I think this one comment started the whole company. Someone commented, Ronnie, what blender do you use? And we told Ronnie, Ronnie, your audience will use anything you said you use in order to get fit. But we set out to look for something that helped Ronnie monetize the relationship she had with her audience and nothing existed. So we just set out to create the easiest way to connect marketers with content creators like Ronnie. And now we have over 50,000 of these creators that marketers can tap into and 57 employees. So if we just go back a little bit further, because your family, I know some of your history, and although we didn't schedule to talk about this, you are a bit of a serial entrepreneur. Can you just quickly tell us some of the other ventures you had, especially while you were in university and then up right up to hashtags? I don't know if I would consider myself a serial entrepreneur. I actually never even really considered myself a business person. I always came at it more from being a creative lens. I remember sitting down with somebody at a lunch, and uh, he told me to get LinkedIn. I told him LinkedIn. That's for business people. And he said, Brian, you are a business person. So I think I kind of just stumbled upon through creativity and problem solving, which was uh, which I was naturally drawn to. Previous ventures have been projects or learning experiences, aka failures. While I was in university, I did create a physical marketplace for textbooks where students at University of Western Ontario could drop off their used textbooks in physical drop-off locations, we negotiated to have spots at retailers on campus where we would just build a big wooden drop-off bin and leave it you know, at a restaurant, for example. People who went to Western would drop off their textbooks in these boxes. They would get money. We would pay them out via PayPal. And you'd plant a tree in London, Ontario for dropping off your textbooks. We planted over a thousand trees and I learned a lot. I mean, by no means am I a serial entrepreneur. Hashtag paid is definitely my first well, real you, thing. You made the mention of PayPal. 
which leads us right into the next thing I want to talk to you about, and that is how hashtag paid has grown with e-commerce. Because starting in 2020, people were forced to turn to online shopping. I mean, we could go to online shopping anyway, but now we were forced to. Companies made radical shifts. I can tell you in Germany, they say that they accomplished in three months would have otherwise taken 10 years. Generally, we're finding e-commerce was accelerated by five years. So how has this changed for you? How did this rapid growth in e-commerce in 2020 affect the creator slash influencer community and your company? Yeah, I think I'm very fortunate to have been in an industry that was accelerated by COVID versus hurt from it because I know there's a lot of entrepreneurs and business owners who weren't as fortunate. So what sort of is happening is as businesses are shifting the way they sell to consumers to be online, the way that they market to consumers needs to change. It's not on the shelves, not on radio. It's where people are spending their time online, which is on social. And the best way to reach someone on social is through a creator. So I think we're super fortunate. Also, during most of 2020, a lot of creative agencies couldn't operate. So the need for brands to create content, not only just reach people, but create the content went up because of social distancing. Creative agencies couldn't get together. And then here we had a network Tens of thousands of creators are laying around with all the best equipment. They could shoot content. And not only could they shoot it, but these aren't like paid actors who are pretending to be a family at a commercial. These are real people with real experiences going through the same thing that we all went through. So it was super relatable. And I think yeah, content creation as well as the changing distribution channels just caused more and more brands to shift to creators and social as a channel to acquire customers. So have you been increasing your HR count? Because I know you said you have 57. How many were you at at the beginning of 2020? Yeah, looking back on 2020, I think we're joking around now. We should have hired more people, but we paused our hiring just because everything was so unknown. Like looking back, yeah, it was a mistake, but how did we necessarily know at the time? It was hard to make that bet. So yeah, we paused hiring in Q2 and then probably brought on uh, 15, 20 people since then. And then I think we've got about 19 hires coming up in Q2. So we've definitely turned on. Well done. As you were growing from 2014, 15, 16, talk to me for a sec about the challenges of hiring the number of people you needed to hire, because you're hiring a dozen people a year type of thing. And that is very hard to manage. What was that experience like for you? And what, what suggestions would you make to someone else that finds that they have to rapidly hire in the tech community? Good question. Hopefully, anything I say is helpful, but I mean, advice is just the way that I did it. So That's right. what we're looking for, um, how you did it. <laughs> how I did it. Okay. That. So when I first started building a company, I think I underappreciated the importance of hiring in people. Really, the people you bring onto the team is the company you build. And so it's got to be the top priority, one of the top three priorities of any founder or CEO. Not only that, I would also say, raise your bar of what you think good looks like. Because if you're out there trying to raise venture capital and build a category defining company, you can't settle for average. You really need every single person in the key role to be a person who can go with you to build that category defining company. And they're going to need to be at a certain caliber. So yeah, if you're just getting started, um, one of the things that I would do that you might find helpful is meeting what I would call the best of the best. So, for example, if you're looking for a VP finance, you can go out and through your network or just cold reach out people on LinkedIn, find people who have been either senior directors of finance or VP finance and just send them a note and just say, hey, I'm currently building out the finance team at my company and I'd love to meet with the best of the best to 
recalibrate my bar for talent and understand what great looks like. You reach out to 10 people, three, four, five of them might get back to you. Maybe you meet with three of them. But now these are three incredible people that you can then say like, hey, when I'm interviewing for you know my director of finance, my VP finance, what are some questions I should ask them? You'll learn and very quickly begin to calibrate and get an understanding of what great looks like. Yeah, I definitely did not come up with that myself. I'm not sure how I acquired that, but more advice, more people, you can try different things, you'll figure out what works. That works for me very well. Well, Steve Jobs always said hire 18 people only, and I can't agree more, but I will tell you it's not the easiest thing to do. And as you just said, you have to go through five, 10 people before you find that one person you want. And we're generally lucky. We're in Toronto. It's the big smoke. All the tech people are here, but you don't need to hire local people anymore. Entrepreneurs need to think about that. I'm thinking of hiring uh, an accounting student for our tax season. I'm going to hire somebody from Sault Ste. Marie because they don't have to come in. I want to go back to e-commerce just for a second. Did you envision the shift in consumer behavior? when the pandemic hit, or were you already on the roll you needed to be on? Maybe a bit of luck, a bit of timing here on our side. Somewhere at the beginning of 2019, we had a big focus around what we called solving the biggest problem in the influencer marketing space. And for us, the biggest problem was trust. Marketers did not confidently trust influencer marketing to achieve their critical business objectives. And when you broke it down, there were two main pillars of trust. The first is they didn't trust influencers. Are their followers real? Do they care about my brand? Do their followers care? You know, a lot of mistrust with with influencers. And then there's trust in metrics. So if you're an e-commerce brand and you're looking to scale your monthly sales from $100,000 to $400,000 over the next year, how can you use influencer marketing as a channel to confidently grow your sales? You couldn't. Likes and comments didn't meaningfully grow your business. And so we were fortunate enough to be focused on, we had every single person, the company constantly asked themselves, is what I'm doing solving the problem of trust? We'd everyone working on solving that problem. And so we're able to work with creators, not influencers. There is a difference that you hinted at, as well as report on real metrics that matter, not fluffy metrics like likes and comments. And so for our successful e-commerce customers using hashtag paid, they're able to drive sales based off of their spend in this channel. For example, they might have a four to one return on ad spend. Um, or they might be able to get their lowest cost per acquisition than any other paid social channel, the $20 cost per acquisition. And they're able to measure that using the software. So having the entire company focused around solving this problem of trust, which specifically focused around the e-commerce customer type, it was super fortunate because as e-commerce continued to grow, as you said, 5, 10x in 2020 compared to the previous trajectory, we had already built the product that was number one on G2 Cloud for this category. And so we naturally picked up a lot of traction. You know, Brian, for someone who says he doesn't think of himself as a businessman, you're talking a lot of business speak, my friend, a lot of business speak. Let's talk about cookies and targeting, because I know that Google has confirmed it's going to be removing support for third-party cookies in Chrome. I can't speak to Safari or the other ones, but that's what Google has said. Third-party cookies, they fuel a lot of the digital advertising ecosystem, and this could affect advertisers, marketers, creators, influencers, as targeting becomes more difficult for brands to navigate. How does this change affect you and how will it affect consumers? For consumers, it generally is positive if you value privacy. You know, there's definitely certain people that I talk to that privacy doesn't exist anymore for them, um, and they're totally okay with privacy 
being gone for the sake of convenience, you know, generally it is important to think from a first principles perspective and ask this if the technology we're building is generally good or bad for people. And in general, I'm favor for more privacy. Though it does pose a challenge for marketers who relied on these channels in order to drive sales. But with every challenge and every shakeup comes an opportunity and yeah, whether it's content creation yourself and putting it out there, which you know could be in the form of anything from podcasts to newsletters, or whether it's working with content creators to create content and spread your message like what we do with creator marketing, those are going to be now the most lucrative channels for e-commerce brands to, to grow and scale. Brian, who would you think sees this as a negative change in the industry, the losing of third-party cookies. Who would see this as a negative? There are, of course, brands who have relied on these channels to scale. And so you can imagine directors of marketing who traditionally have relied on these channels are now looking at their pipeline forecasts and saying, how am I going to make up this pipeline? Or how can I be proactive about hitting future targets? And they're going to start experimenting with new channels. And then the providers, platforms that provide these types of services to marketers, of course, their best interest is not the deciding factor in, in this decision. So, you know, there's definitely some second order negative effects. It's obviously not a clear cut decision, but ultimately I do think you know, it is the right one. So let's talk about diversity and hashtag paid and your thoughts on things. And diverse representation in the media is critical. And there's been a lot of racialized content that creators have spoken out about. They've spoken out about tokenization, unfair pair, microaggressions, especially when collaborating with major brands. I read it and I see it and there's truth to it. The Black Lives Matter movement last summer sparked a lot of the dialogue around the barriers that black individuals experience. We've talked to some black entrepreneurs on, on the Movers and Shakers podcast. There's an increase in social activism. There's a spotlight on all of this. So what was hashtag paid response to the Black Lives Matter movement? And are you supporting the black creator community, the black, I don't want to say influencer, but people see it as the same thing for this conversation. How are you supporting this group? It's an important topic for sure. And so I think as a company or a marketplace that facilitates collaborations that essentially is media, when a creator posts online, you're reaching people, it is media, it's modern media, but it's media. We have an added responsibility, I believe, to represent diverse and diverse creator rosters. And so before the, black, the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement, um, we had a few key people at the company lead a movement for us to educate our customers on why they should be working with diverse creators. And so uh, we actually put a slide in every single one of our proposals around why diversity is important and why it will actually lead to better results. Um, and so it's something we've been passionate, passionate about for a while. However, yeah, this, I mean, this movement, the recent resurgence has certainly been eye-opening and has caused, yeah, a lot of needed time to reflect and learn. And so, yeah, for us, I mean, I can think of it through the lenses, us as a media company representing media through our marketplace, and then us as a company in and of itself who diversity and inclusion is important to. So, yeah, in terms of our uh, creator community, we've always been trying to promote diverse rosters, specifically for our black creators. What we did is we featured them in the newsletter and we featured stories from our creators that also went out to other creators and brands in our community and stories from creators specifically who understand the black experience as well as ones who participate in diverse campaigns from our diverse brands. So for example, we work with some of the institutions in Quebec around creating more awareness for 
black people to donate blood because there's actually a special subtype of blood which is more common in black people, uh, for example, sickle cell disease. And so, which it's life-threatening. And people who are trying to get the best treatment need to be matched through blood transfusions with people who have similar types of blood as that, which comes from people of the same ethnicity. And so we had a campaign promoting more people from the black community donating blood, specifically in Quebec, which that was a really cool campaign. So it just generally made more of an effort to bring these stories to life. And then also there's the angle of, okay, as a company, what are we doing to make sure that we're supporting the black community? There's a lot of learning and reflecting internally. I mean, I remember while uh, this was happening early on, we all watched the documentary 13. It was optional, but half the company showed up, which was pretty cool. We had an hour long discussion about it and just like sharing stories or sharing feelings, a lot of empathizing. I mean, ultimately, we want to make sure that we're building a culture where people feel like they can be themselves and they feel comfortable being as close to their 100% authentic self as possible. There's been a lot of learning, reflecting, empathizing, and understanding not only the Black experience, but the Black tech experience and trying our best to create an environment where people feel like they can be their best selves. And then you know, there's also... Um, you know, measuring and tracking diversity, which for the most part, we are one, just familiarizing ourselves with and tapping into pools of talent that come from either underrepresented communities or communities that just they're not necessarily my immediate network. So, for example, our partners at BPTN, who are awesome, help us source specifically black talent, as long as we're making sure that we're, the pipeline of candidates coming in are as diverse as possible and we hire the best person for the role, it's more likely that we'll end up just building a, a more diverse team. Back to the A-team. Whatever the background, the A-team is key, but I certainly appreciate all the things you said about diversity. Now, what really impresses me is I read that the creator-slash-influencer industry could be worth $15 billion dollars by the end of next year, the end of 2022. And we're talking about that being a maturing industry now. And in a very, very fast time, we've got individuals that may have 1,000 to 10,000 followers on social media, and they've become viable options for startups that don't have big budgets. So what advice would you give to a startup who's interested in leveraging creator influencer marketing? What, what are the inside tips? Well, if you're just getting started and you don't really have any budget to work with, you're generally going to start focusing on creators who are just getting started, maybe have a couple hundred to a few thousand followers, and you'll try to get them. Hopefully, they believe in your product so much so that they're willing to partner with you and you can compensate them in other ways. Maybe it's a free product or you could even consider bringing them on as advisors and give them some stock options in the company. It's really interesting. Or you can ask them to become investors if they're even bigger. And that's a way to partner and work with creators without um, paying them. But ultimately, once you do start putting together a bit of a budget around this channel, and let's say you're too early to bring on a platform, one of the best kept secrets in paid social is what we call creator whitelisting, which is when you take essentially the creator's digital presence and you send it to your Facebook ads manager, and then you can run ads through the creator's persona. So when you're scrolling through your feed, rather than seeing an ad from a brand, you're seeing an ad from a creator with a call to action, as well as all of the targeting that brands are used to. And so whitelisting, actually, we're seeing on average, it performs 20 to 25% better than a regular paid social channel. So if you are working with a creator and collaborating with them, definitely try to get access to their Facebook ad manager, where they're essentially sending their handle, their picture, their content to your Facebook ads manager, and then you can run paid social ads 
through the crater and experiment with that because you might find that something clicks and it's your best performing acquisition channel and then it's a slide on your investor deck. Well, I want to draw people's attention to, again, to your website, hashtagpay.com. Right on the top, it says Crater Rates Report. Guess how much influencers made in 2020? Not a secret anymore. We looked at all our brand campaigns and pulled some real numbers for you. And there's a click, which takes you to the 2021 Creator Pricing Guide. There's some fabulous information there. So, again, people should look at hashtagpay.com. Brian, I hope you have a crystal ball. And we won't share this with anybody, but what's next? What do you see coming through 2021-2022 for hashtag paid? We've got to a place now where we feel really comfortable with the tools and the software that we've built for brand. And so we're starting to see our focus start shifting towards developing more tools for creators, which is something that I'm really excited about. So yeah, later on this year, we'll be releasing specific tools and products focused to creators, which is exciting. It's a third revenue stream of the business. Um, and then yeah, at the same time, continuing to grow. I think one thing that's really interesting about our business is because our business model is a SaaS marketplace, which means we charge brands a monthly fee and we also capture a percentage of spend in our marketplace, the whole product team has a metric that they can work towards moving that actually aligns very nicely with adding customer value and helping creators make more money, and that's frequency. The more brands run more campaigns in our marketplace, that means they're getting more value, they're seeing more value, and creators are earning more. But it also means that we're making more money and we're growing as well. So it's a really cool metric that aligns our growth with customer value as well. And so the product team, yeah, they're focused on increasing frequency, increasing transactions, and then we're really excited about building out more tools for creators. Did I understand correctly that you gave up your office space not long ago and all of your 57 people are working virtually now? The official announcement is that we'll remote first until the end of 2021, and then we'll reassess. But ultimately, I think it's going to be hard to fully recreate an environment where everyone's in the same spot. Because, for example, the last piece to the puzzle on our leadership team right now is hiring a head of media sales. Um, but the candidates that we're talking to this week are based in Austin, they're based in New York. And so, yeah, it's hard to imagine a world where it goes back to exactly how it is before, um, probably what will end up happening is some sort of hub, city, um, we work location pop-up where you can go into a smaller office and socialize with colleagues and um, work together on projects. But there's ultimately going to be a, probably an element of remote or remote first with us for the foreseeable future. What do you think your managers have found to be their biggest challenge working with remote teams? It's got to be onboarding. Onboarding, it's really hard to integrate somebody into a culture when you're not physically with them. So much of the bonding comes from sharing a meal with somebody or a little bit of the banter that comes before you get into a meeting. Um, when everything's like scheduled time block, Zoom meeting, stare at a screen, uh, it can be hard to build the trust and trust building between a manager and direct report is the yeah. foundation for a successful relationship. I agree with you. Have you lost any new people because of unsuccessful onboarding or have you managed to overcome that? No, we haven't lost anyone because of unsuccessful onboarding, but um, you know, we do hear feedback like, hey, I wish I met more people from the company outside of my immediate teams. So we uh, we kind of did this as a random experiment slash joke, but it received really good positive feedback. We might do it again. We booked random 15-minute meetings in people's calendar 
randomly pairing them up with other people. And the subject line is, this is for fun. And one member of the group who was in the know of what was happening would join each one. And we hosted just spontaneous, random 15-minute catch-ups uh, from random team members from different departments. And uh, it's like one element, you get a little bit more um, trust, you're able to bond a little bit more, hear more about the personal side of people outside the group that you immediately talk to. So yeah, that got great, great feedback. I'll probably do it again. Random idea, but one, that, one of the ways to combat onboarding. That is an excellent idea. Highly recommend our entrepreneurs across the country think of doing something like that. Okay, Brian, before we wrap up, my favorite part, in fact, with these questions are submitted to us by our vast audience, rapid fire questions right off the top of your head. Are you ready? Favorite social media platform? Instagram slash Twitter. Any up-and-coming influencers on your radar that we don't know about? No. No? No. Okay. Best part about being a founder, besides that you're the boss? Doing what you love every day. doesn't matter how much work it is when you wake up super excited about what you're building. First real job you held? Toy store sales associate. And you also worked at an Apple store, and you still fix your grandmother's iPad. So well done, buddy. Well done. Thank you. What are you reading currently? There's a book that one of our investors gave me called No, and that's what I'm currently reading. No, podcasts. Outside of this one, which I know you subscribe to, what, what are the top two podcasts you listen to? Top two would be The Knowledge Project by Shane Parrish, as well as The Pop Podcast. How do you relax, Brian? Meditation certainly helped me manage everything that's going on. So I try to do a half an hour every morning. Sometimes it's only 10 minutes, um, which is okay, but that helps keep me calm. And then, um, yeah, at the end of the day, sometimes I'll jam out on guitar, um, learn a song that, that I'm listening to. I'll just look up how to play it and just like figure out how to play it on guitar. That's fun too. Your new dog's name? Brody. And why did you get a dog? That's actually a good question. So one thing is that um, I grew up with a dog, and so I've always I think if you grow up with a dog, you've kind of always wanted you kind of always have a, a special place in your heart for dogs. Um, and so like that was one, and then two, my girlfriend really really wanted to get a dog, and so we thought, yeah, you know, might as well move in together. The timing's kind of right. Let's do it. We just celebrated one year. There's an influencer in your life. Well done. Coffee or tea. Coffee, two to three cups a day. I should probably Ooh, come down. But yeah, you should. Favorite artist? Can I say Jesse Gold? You can. You can. Jesse Gold at jessegoldmusic.com. Canada's up-and-coming rock single. star. Favorite uncle? Good. Favorite uncle? It's got to be you. It's got to be me. And this is the question that I like to ask. What business or industry do you think will be gone in five years? Tablets. Tablets. All righty. All right. Okay. Brian Gold. Brian is the co-founder and the CEO of Hashtag Paid, HashtagPaid.com. Brian, thank you for being a guest on the Movers and Shakers podcast. So much fun. Thanks for having me. And until next time, I'm Robert Gold, Managing Partner of Bennett Gold LLP, Chartered Accounts and CPAs in Toronto. If you want to see what a great CPA firm can do for your accelerating business, check us out at BennettGold.ca. See you next time in the morning, everyone, and good night, Redhead Cove, Newfoundland. And that's a wrap for this episode of the DMZ Movers and Shakers podcast. Make sure you subscribe and follow our podcast so you never miss an episode. You can also visit us at dmz.ryerson.ca for more tips and tools designed to support your business. Until next time.